Hi, I'm David Green, and you're listening to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is one that I know listeners will enjoy. Joining me today is Alexis Fink, Vice President of People Analytics and Workforce Strategy at Meta, and the new incoming president-elect of SIL. I'm particularly honoured to have Alexis on the show, as she has built an incredible people analytics team at Meta and is a renowned expert in the field. Alexis will provide insights into how to structure a people analytics team, the skills needed to thrive in a people analytics role, and guidance to aspiring people analytics leaders to take their teams to the next level. So if you're looking to understand how to structure your people analysis function for scale and to deliver value, this conversation is for you. Let's get started. Alexis, welcome to the show. Uh, before we dive into the conversation, could you please share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and your role at Meta? Sure. Uh, so this analytics work has really been my life's work. I was reflecting recently that my first job in this space was in 1992. Uh, I do have the privilege of having had uh, similar roles at both Intel and Microsoft and have had roles doing this kind of work going back, actually back into the 90s. I had the opportunity in graduate school to do grant work for the Navy and NASA uh, right now, my role at Meta lets me play across the whole people analytics space. So we get to play with data foundations, we get to play with scaled reporting, we get to play with deep research, we get to play with really close partnerships with our HR and business partners, uh, and it is just really a dream and a delight. So really looking forward to the conversation. So again, before we start, though, I should first congratulate you on uh, on your incoming uh, role as president-elect at SIOP. Could you share with listeners a little bit about SIOP and, and what your role as, as president will entail? Ah, that's one of my favorite topics. So SIOP is the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. And one of the things that's really beautiful about it is it is a very strong, balanced marriage between those who are academic, really on the forefront of research, and those who are practitioners. And frequently practitioners uh, in a lot of professions, they leave school and, and you know, sort of never really re-engage. But there is a really thriving community of people. And given the advances, the advances in people analytics, there is a thriving cutting edge of research work that is happening in practice. And so we do have a really strong annual conference that brings together typically about 5,000 people going deep on new methods and new insights. Uh, as uh, president, I will have the opportunity to help guide the society overall. We have a strong executive board made up of people who attend to science and research and uh, governmental advocacy for uh, employment law and have the opportunity to make sure that we are distributing these best practices to our members. And also, we're really about advancing this science, not strictly for our members. So the things that we can provide to the PA community at large. Um, I will have the opportunity to spend three years helping to guide our strategy. I have been an advocate for a long time of people analytics and of that pr practitioner aspect, making sure that our work is pragmatic, making sure that our work is 
is really helping serve the organizations in which we find ourselves as opposed to just being interesting. Uh, and so I'm just really excited to get to spend more time with my colleagues across uh, and help advance solid science uh, for better workplaces and, and better opportunities for workers. So before you, you before you got into analytics and, and the fact alongside some of the roles that you, you've held in analytics, you've had operational and, and change management roles as well. You know, how have these roles helped you understand people analytics in, in maybe a more intrinsic way? You know, David, that is a great question. And it's kind of a timely one. Uh, my opportunity to spend several years of my career focused on change management and then another several years focused on real business operations, uh, integrating acquisitions and doing business turnarounds, getting really deep into the financials and the mechanics of how work got done, I do believe makes me much stronger as a people analytics professional because it helps ground me in what happens before and after our research. So why are we interested in this question? How do we frame it in a way that it will be useful? Now that we've come up with an insight, what do we do with it? What's the vector? What's the channel? Um, there's a really common framework that I think my team is sick of hearing me uh, spout about figuring out what and then so what and then now what. And the uh, so what and now what is really all, all of my expertise there came from time in OD and change management, came from time in deep operations. Having a, a really great insight is like a cool mic drop moment for television. Uh, but if you want to have impact in an organization, you then have to translate what I have found into what we could do differently to make something else happen. I used to joke that I kind of got into people analytics um, as a bit of a power trip because I didn't want to just see what was coming. I wanted to be able to bend the arc to make a different thing happen. And it's not it's not enough to just say, oh, you know, look at that tornado headed straight for your house. Uh, we need to figure out a way to to bend the curve so that we can have something better happen. And that's uh, that's where people analytics gets a lot of its value. And that is more than just the statistics. And so important because actually insights are great, but unless actually you deliver actions and outcomes with them, you know, I've, as I've heard some of your peers in the in the community talk about, it's overhead. I mean, it's it's you've got to, and then you've got to be thinking, I guess, as you're crafting the recommendations from the insights, how can we how can we get these implemented, and then how can we measure their impact? Exactly, and in fact, when I talk about a research cycle. Years and years ago, I got certified as a black belt, which was trendy. About a million years ago, it tells you how old I am. But one of the things I appreciated about that methodology is it always included going back to make sure that your recommendations had the outcome that you intended. And we know that broadly in science, the things that you can isolate in a lab sort of setting degrade when you put them into practice by about 50%. So let's make sure that what you promised will happen actually happened. Let's get better at tuning those recommendations and... A team I had a while ago made them go back and check on on how their recommendations had landed. And it was really fascinating that that do loop deeply honed their partnership with the client group implementing. And it meant that we about doubled the number of our recommendations that landed. And I don't ever want to get to a point where every single recommendation lands because then you're not pushing the boundaries quite enough. But it needs to be a pretty high percentage uh, in order to be valuable, because otherwise people aren't interested in what you have to say. It's just like a fun party trick. And I guess as a, you know, thinking about your experience in the people analytics field, it it helps you separate, because I think as analysts, sometimes we can easily dive into the stuff that we think is cool. 
but it may not be the stuff the business actually needs or, or, or even the workforce needs to actually differentiate the call from the, the, the work that's actually going to add value. Yeah, I joke all the time that if you want to make me cry, tell me that's interesting. Because it, it is a guarantee you're not going to do anything with it. It's some really fascinating research. Maybe I had a great time going down a rabbit hole with some new math that I thought was fun. And then somebody looked at me and says, oh, that's interesting. I know it's going nowhere. So really figuring out how to make sure that all the way through our research pipeline, you're really close with those partners in defining a problem, in figuring out what are the segments that are relevant. In graduate school, I could not wrap my brain around Simpson's paradox and the fact that you could have one trend that goes up and to the right if you look at it with a particular denominator. But then if you segmented out, each segment within that up and to the right might be going down to the right uh, and really understanding what's a meaningful chunk so that we can deliver insights that are actionable instead of doing harm by delivering something that is poorly conceived. And over and over and over again, it's those business partners, the leaders, the HRBPs who, who pick at you and say, yeah, but. And if you've waited to the very end to deliver an insight, you've lost an opportunity to build partnership, to build trust. You've wasted cycles. You've potentially really made yourself look like an idiot. Uh, there's just all kinds of things that can go sideways if you're not investing in that deep partnership. I'd love to hear your reflections on, on how the people analytics discipline has, has evolved over the years. So when I started, it was a lot of things that I would, would think of as very classic. A lot, I was doing a lot of job analysis kinds of work, for example, which is entirely unsexy. Usually now, if you're doing that, you're calling it competencies. But it was really sort of buried down six layers in an organization, wasn't terribly strategic, was often to meet employment law requirements, and was often quite focused on job analysis, often quite focused on performance management. Sometimes you'd get to break out and do some work on leadership or effective teams or effective management. Uh, I even occasionally got to do time and motion studies to figure out how to price uh, particular products based on the staffing that was required to do them. But it was really focused on uh, utility and really focused on sort of back-end operations of making HR work. If you look back further beyond my, my time in the career, uh, you can see this decision science emerging from those operational disciplines. And I described a lot of things that were pretty operational 30 years ago. Now we are with the CEOs and delivering data to boards of directors on here's what your most critical asset or certainly in many cases your most expensive asset is doing. And it's really fascinating. John Boudreau and others talk about this. We saw differentiated competitive advantage emerge from different kinds of decision science over the last, loosely call it a century. The turn of the 20th century, you saw finance emerge from the operational disciplines of accounting to really create differentiated advantage. And you can't imagine a large company without a finance function now. The same way mid-century, sort of the Mad Men era, you found marketing emerging out of sales um, certainly sales is still really critical, but marketing is a decision science, really figuring out how to, conf uh, how to configure our products, for example, or think about uh, to who we might sell. And we're really seeing the same thing happen in the people space now. doesn't take anything away from the need to really do excellent HR still, but the decision science around people analytics to really figure out how to make best use of the skills and capabilities that you have in an organization that might be changing 
how to solve the perennial problems of performance review that helps instead of hindering. All of those kinds of things are really emerging now as a decision science that uh, are creating competitive advantage for the organizations that are good for them or good with them. And uh, now I think we're actually at a moment where it's hard to imagine a company that isn't doing some of this. I'm seeing tiny little 500-person startups that are beginning their journey with a focus on people analytics. You've worked in, you know, you mentioned Microsoft and Intel and now Meta. You've worked for three of the leading companies in the people analytics space. You know, I think most people in the field would recognize those three companies as as leaders, I think, in, in, in this area. Uh, and you've seen various different people analytics team structures and operating models. What are the different types of structures that, that you've seen? And, and in your opinion, I guess, based on that experience, you know, what would you say is the best way to build a people analytics team? It is interesting that there are lots of ways to solve this problem. And depending on the opportunities in front of you, different answers can be appropriate at different times. One obvious model is to be very distributed and deeply embedded with clients. So you see Amazon embracing this. They have lots of people analytics teams tied to lots of different parts of the business. And even within that, different functions within those parts of their business. Uh, and those teams are often pretty self-contained. You see this in lots of places. And there's really a lot to recommend it when you have high-quality data infra, when you have solid practices, uh, when you have good coherence in approach, then getting that data as uh, that data team, that research team, as close to the business it supports as possible, uh, it really helps make sure that their work is deeply aligned to the problems at hand. You can start to risk contradictions with the rest of the ecosystem. You can potentially miss some opportunities for internal mobility. And if the business conditions that make that that deep partnership workable are there, you can also end up with some pretty bad things happening. But in general, like that's a very workable model. Uh, the other kind of index or access, as opposed to reporting lines, so is it centralized or distributed, is how is it anchored? And it's fascinating to me the extent to which people will use the same term, people analytics, to mean different things. And I will kind of categorize them as people data, which might be much more reporting centric, and there are some very esteemed folks who are basically running reporting shops. And you know what? Their clients love them because they can get answers and they can get those answers quickly, efficiently, accurately. And often those, those reporting focused shops can do a lot of custom slices that does put the onus on the client often to do the sense making, but the data are available and it's very satisfying. The other axis to index on is basically new information. I characterize as people research, where you're really doing new original research. And there, rather than, you mentioned earlier, the pandemic and distributed work. So there, rather than just counting how many people are coming into the office or not coming into the office, you'd be getting underneath, you know, what's their productivity in each of these places and what's the their tenure and their job level and how many of their other clients are coming in and how much are those other features, predictors of their satisfaction and productivity and, and sort of all of these other things. So the the vector of am I a reporting shop or am I a research shop is another important one to consider. And again, that goes to what the business needs, what's the tolerance, uh, what are the assets that you have available? Interestingly, when folks 
get their first, they are the first PA leader in a team or in an organization. And they come to me and they're like, hey, Alexis, can you help me figure out what to do? I'll often advise them to start as a research team because you can get there quicker. You can do some some bespoke work and you're not as dependent on your HR data being in an analyzable state. And so that can be a way to establish trust and start building value and start building relationships while you do the fairly laborious work of getting whatever your HRIS is in a state that you could do the reporting that we need and get the data definitions, et cetera. So most teams will need to do some of both, um, but there's also kind of a, a complementarity and, and sequencing. Additionally, you can use the reporting as like a Trojan horse to get to some of the research stuff that maybe clients didn't think to ask for. Let's pause for a short moment and give a big thank you to our sponsors of this series. At a time when economic uncertainty is ever-present, business leaders need to make quick, data-driven decisions with confidence. As the leading organizational design and workforce planning software platform, OrgView captures the power of data visualization and modeling to give leaders the actionable insight and analysis they need. OrgView is used by the world's largest and best-known enterprises and management consulting firms to build more adaptable, better-performing organizations. See tomorrow's business today with OrgView. To find out more, visit orgview.com. That's O-R-G-V-U-E dot com. It's, it's, it, I think another thing I see with particularly with companies that are maybe younger in their, uh, in their people analytics journey, they hire a lot of analysts, data scientists, hopefully they hire data scientists when they're actually doing data science. And sometimes there's quite an inward looking focus on the data and, and not enough of a focus perhaps on the business priorities or, or the work, the, the priorities of the workforce as well. And as you think to build a team, whatever structure you've got, you, you, I'd love to hear you, your viewers on, you, do you need people in the team who are good consultants, I guess, who can really start to, you know, someone comes with a problem, that might not be the question you want to answer. You might need to ask five questions to get to the question and the, the hypothesis that you want to test with analytics, yeah? You know, David, you're exactly right. And my last two teams both had a whole function that were really in those consulting roles that were deeply connected to their businesses and the problems that they were facing and the quirks of their leaders and the structures and the history of how they got there so that when someone asked a basic how many question, they could figure out what's the real decision we're trying to make, what's the problem, what's the pinch point in this organization we're trying to get underneath. And most people in PA roles, and frankly, most people in lots of roles have experienced sort of a bring me a rock problem where someone gives you a poorly articulated need and you answer that need like, ah, oh, that's not really what I wanted. Could you look at it this way? Oh, you know, could you cut it this other way? You know, maybe you could look over here. And sometimes it's just fishing expeditions where they're trying to get away from something uncomfortable. But a lot of times they just haven't articulated it well. And if you just take that request at face value, you're going to end up going through many frustrating iterations, especially if each iteration requires that you do a new data pull because they ask you to pull in a new variable that wasn't in your original set. So it's not a five minute, let me add this. It could be, depending on the state of your data, 
it could be a couple of hours of extracting something and then joining it and cleaning it up and and doing all of your transformations. And then you can run the 30-second analysis. Um, but it just ends up sometimes consuming days or weeks of iterations. Uh, if you don't invest in that deep business consultancy, and then if you haven't built the trust up front to also be able to say no, or actually I tell my team often, you don't have to say no, just don't say yes yet. Unless you understand what decision I'm trying to make, I might not have time for you. Because if you're just going to some kind of curiosity thing, or you're getting ready for a big meeting and you want to show off that you know this number, but you're not actually making a decision, like, I got a lot of requests here, people. We got to prioritize. And if there's not a real business outcome, I'm not asking my team to work nights and weekends for this. Uh, so that that laser focus on business impact is something that um, some teams do really well and others maybe focus on just like, what's your SLA for answering a question as opposed to did something different happen in the organization because of it? And it's not to say that an SLA isn't important. It's good to keep your promises, but really thinking through utility is very valuable. I've seen a lot more conversations about that since we're either in or flirting with a recession and in or flirting with staff reductions at lots and lots of companies. All of a sudden, we're thinking through how we demonstrate value in maybe a more urgent way. What are your thoughts on are on the importance of a a, a relationship between the people analytics team and their HR business partners and the and the chief people officer. Uh, so the meeting I have immediately after this podcast is with one of my HRBP VPs. So like, yes, they're really critical. I need to spend as much time with them. All the context things we've talked about and the problem definition things. Also, the HRBPs, or in some cases, the COE leads, if you're talking about talent management or learning development or others, um, they are the ones who have to consume what you're building right? They're the ones who actually make the magic happen. Um, and if you're not, A, meeting their needs and B, delivering it in a way that's usable, like you're not actually terribly valuable. You're just a, a pretty ornament. And so spending time with those folks, as we've said, to make sure we're solving the problems. And solving the problems looks like not just good insight, but good insight that's tied to a choice that they might actually make uh, whether that's a program design choice or a org design choice or whatever else. Uh, and then if we, one of the things that's been really exciting in the last, really primarily last five years, is seeing people analytics come out from underneath, maybe a telemanagement or a selection or an HR operations or even an HR strategy role or sometimes even a corporate strategy role. They were a couple of layers in many cases below uh, the the CHRO. Over and over and over again, you're seeing that people analytics leader report directly to the CHRO. And then that person can serve as a little bit of an audit function. That person can serve as a little bit of a strategic gate to make sure that we're spending time on the right big problems uh, and also can help create more robust narratives for that CHRO as opposed to having everything sort of filtered through. And while I believe that all of my partners, literally in this job, every one of my partners is a sincere and wonderful and just brilliant person, there's still a game of telephone. And um, anything that I say gets filtered through that person's priorities. And then if it has to go through that person to get to the CHRO, then there's been an extra layer of priorities put into it. And some key insights may, through no malice, 
but just through that person's lens uh, get dropped out. And and joining those more closely, I think, is really, really helpful. It's been gratifying in the last few years to see how much of our HR strategy, other organizations' HR strategies are really filtered through or influenced directly by people analytics. And that is that is a change over the last decade. It's also a tremendous opportunity and a significant obligation. If you are really in a role of guiding strategy, you have an obligation to make sure that you are being pragmatic, that you're being focused on business value, that you're thinking about scale, that you're sort of thinking about all these other things, that when you're in more of a ivory tower style research function, where you're like, this is, look at this cool finding. You need to make sure that you can, uh, if you're going to guide your organization on the basis of it, you need to be really confident that it's real and true and and will deliver an outcome. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because the research that we've done over the last three years, you know, each year, the number of people analytics leaders reporting directly to the CHO has increased. It's over 20% based on the 184 companies that, that participated last time. And over 80% that at least report to a, a member of the HR leadership team. So I think, as you said, it's it used to be buried down several layers in the HR function. And it's difficult to add business value then, isn't it? You know, if you're at the top table, um, you know, A, it sends a message to the rest of HR that this is important. Um, B, it probably helps you get access to the right stakeholders in the business as well. And potentially, I guess, more investment um, as well to to build that function out uh, the way it needs to be built out to deliver the value it can deliver. Yeah. And one of the things that I think has changed um, in concert with that over the last several years is I have seen a shift away from people analytics being largely a vendor management function where you've got, oh, here's the vendor who does your selection stuff. And here's the vendor who does your performance management stuff. And here's the vendor who does your HR reporting. And here's the vendor you're using for learning. And they're going to give you some learning data. Uh, and, and as we brought that in-house to get the strategic business value out of it, to get the intimacy between the data and our own business, uh, that necessarily sort of floated up. When it was uh, just, you know, find the vendor who will give us the services, that's not terribly strategic and it makes sense to be a couple layers down. When now it's really setting the strategy, that, that lands a little bit closer to the top of the house. Yeah. Yeah, and we see, again, see a lot of companies that, blending people analytics and people strategy together, which as you said, you can't really you shouldn't really have a strategy unless it's informed by data, should you? So um on on that note, um again, staying with the HRBPs for for the moment, you know, what's what skills and competencies and capabilities and behaviors maybe do you think the HR business partners need to be effective as as this, as the world of work continues to evolve? You know, it's really interesting. I've seen, I think you've seen as well, sort of a bifurcation or maybe even a trifurcation in the kinds of HRBPs that are out there. There's some that are very uh, execution focused. There are some that are very sort of classic OD, leader coaching, change management focused. And then you're starting to see a, a third leg that are really more data focused. And the challenge is, the HRBP function needs all of those, right? We have to do performance management. We have to pay people fairly and adequately. We have to 
build hiring plans and and build benefits programs that are, you know, germane, regardless of sort of where that lands, et cetera. And the strategic OD pieces of that really should be yin and yang to the strategic data pieces of that. So when you think about those three legs, um, I think all of them are really critical, even for people in the sort of the first two legs, if you will. I think that given the way the world has changed over the last decade, at least data literacy becomes really important. I, it's been a while since I've had an HRBP look at me, look me in the face and say, I just don't believe in data. Um, and I used to get a lot of, in fact, I used to do a talk about it, uh, a lot of what I refer to as the don't talk to my boyfriend problem, where like the HRBP really owns the relationship and you come in with something different. And depending on the business leader, sometimes they really like the something different you're providing. And instead of seeing that as a partnership, there have been HRBPs in the past that have really seen it as a threat. And I haven't had that experience over the last maybe half a decade either, where there's more of a realization that this is a vector for power and influence. Uh, this is the lingua franca of business. And so to the extent that we can make sure uh, we as people analytics professionals are equipping and lifting up the HRBPs, we can make sure that we don't get into the, the don't talk to my boyfriend problem. The flip side of that, the one that we have to own is, um, I will sort of talk about one of the quickest ways to get iced out of a relationship is by swaggering in there and sort of saying, look how much better I am at your job than you are. Like that's not a way to win friends and influence people. Uh, <laughs> I can see you shaking your head. So really recognizing that this is a partnership and it is our job both of our jobs, the HRBP and the PA leader, to make sure that the business is making the best possible choices. And we are both bringing things to this relationship. I've used an analogy in the past that it's almost like the HRBP is the parent of the child and I'm the pediatrician. And I'm going to come in with some like tests and some data and some standards and are they gaining weight and whatever else. But you know your kid. And so like between us, we can make sure that kid stays healthy. But you have the everyday relationship and I have the kind of you know, with an infant, like the every three months relationship, right? Uh, so with, with that as context, data literacy, really good partnership, and then all that same business and strategic acumen that we need in PA. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Moving now to people analytics. So as people analytics kind of continues to scale and grow, and, and I know you know in the organisation, you know in Meta and you know Intel and Microsoft, there are you know pretty pretty significant sized people analytics teams. Um, what are the key skills required now in people analytics? And you know, what are your thoughts on some of the emerging skills in the in the field as well, such as maybe NLP or or, or some of the other skills that we're seeing functions build. 
Excellent. So if you look back even 15 years to the way data science was being defined, um, that's actually a good frame for us. There's a pillar around content, and there's deep content expertise that we need in order to be able to form reasonable questions, right? Uh, to be able to know what kind of math to use, what what's the nature of the underlying variables. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's really about content. There's also a whole bunch of stuff to do this well that's about basic blocking and tackling of data. Like, how do you tease data out of the cozy little warm hidey holes and, and get them into a usable format and ideally do that in an ongoing way so that you can be efficient in your analyses? Um, there was a time when people talked about 90% of their jobs being basically data wrangling. As we get better and better at this, that percentage is going down, but it is not at zero yet. Uh, so that the sort of pillar of, of data work itself, data engineering transformation, et cetera. And then you get into the stuff that everybody thinks about as people engineering or people analytics, which is the statistical and analytical pieces. So as you know, um, as we've talked about so far, all of your reporting kinds of things, all of your parametric tests kinds of things, knowing like regression is probably, uh, Keith McNulty has a whole book, textbook on regression. It's probably the most, like the Swiss army knife of people analytics. But knowing like when you're using linear versus logistic and, and some of the rules about how to do that well, there's been some super exciting stuff in NLP. We can have a whole conversation about GPTs. Um, but even apart from GPTs, there's all kinds of great stuff you can be doing with skills extraction, all kinds of wonderful things you can be doing with comments in a survey even. You mentioned engagement surveys and employee listening. I don't know how many people uh, listening to this have ever done the mind-numbing work of reading 5,000 comments to try and make sense out of them. But holy smokes, like a good NLP can can zap that in order pretty quickly and it's deeply, deeply powerful. I'm a big fan of optimization modeling under that analytical stack because it gets you closer to some of the recommendations. If you want this outcome, here's a way to get it. Here's, here's how we want to move forward, whether that's a junior-senior mix or whether that's a diversity question or whether that's looking at some succession planning outcome uh, using those kinds of techniques, I think, can be really, really powerful and often not taught in and certainly higher psychology graduate schools, although they're beginning to be more so. And then people will disparage it as pretty pictures, but the older I get, the more I am convinced of the power of good data visualization, which I put in that same analytical stack. And again, people will disparage it, but there's something amazing when someone can walk past a conference room, glance sideways at what's on the screen and understand what you're saying. And the first time I put just a just like a block chart up in front of an executive, and within a second, she was like, oh my God, that means X and Y and Z are true. And I'm just like, I don't know how you got this from this, but now that I told my aunt, I can totally see that you did. The, the speed and power of a really good visualization is something I think we underestimate. If I move past the standard way we think about content, data work, analytical work, there's something else that's really important for projects to not fail. Um, and when I saw failures, they were not usually in content. They were not usually in data. They were not even usually in, dude, you chose the wrong math. You like violated statistical assumptions or whatever. They were usually a failure of influence, which goes back to that relationship with the HRBP. It goes back to making sure answering a question the business cares about. It goes back to making sure that you move from insight to implications and then finally to a real action. That influence layer is sort of where great research goes to die. And, you know, and as the 
incoming president of PSYOP <laughs> and, and, and an IO psychologist yourself. I'd love to learn more about your thoughts on the importance of IO psychology in, in people. And so I guess it sits in that statistical and analytical layer, but maybe calling out why it's important, particularly when we're thinking that ultimately it's about people, I guess. And I'm going to have to buy you a drink later for giving me the excuses to talk about IO. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's very much in that analytical layer, but it's also really in the content layer. Robust education in IO psychology will get you into a century of research. Our flagship journal was launched in 1917, so literally a century of research about how selection works and how performance review works and how management works and the distinction between management and leadership and how power moves through organizations and how you make a team effective and, and what happens with different work settings, which we actually started studying in the 70s, like all of the content about how these things work that and even getting into cognitive biases and, and a bunch of these foundational things that come to play uh, with us at work. So I do think that IO psychology has some real advantages in the content space that then can be married with computer scientists who will have all the data engineering and in some cases, some statistical techniques that are really complementary to the ones that we would have learned in sort of a more pure social science framework. And then when you can sort of marry that with the content expertise coming out of an IO psych background, you can really do some powerful things. Um, similarly, every team I've been on has had folks who came out of uh, an HRBP profile uh, who could really do a lot of that influencing, a lot of the pragmatics, a lot of making sure reports were usable. Uh, and so when I think about the role of IO psychology, this is my own bias showing like I see it at kind of the center of this uh, and then really augmented powerfully with folks who know the business, who know influence, folks who really understand how to work with data and make it efficient. I don't code anymore, but back when I was, I could do it, but it was never like great. And then the like amazing code that somebody who's really, truly a data scientist, really, truly a sweet can make, software engineer uh, can make, can just accelerate our, our impact. There's a lot of focus at the moment about upskilling HR professionals, you know, particularly around data literacy and some of the things that we talked about. But what I'm interested in you as a people analytics leader, you know, with a with a with a big team with a variety of different skill sets within within that team that you've got at Meta, you know, how do you develop your team to ensure that they are continuously learning and, and and adding adding value? There's decades of research that shows that most learning actually happens on the job. And even if you decide you're going to take like a, a free class to learn how to do regression, you're going to learn it best when you have a real data set that really matters and you have actual problems to struggle through, right? So making sure that we are structuring the work in a way that people get to learn and stretch generally hasn't actually been a problem because we have new problems coming at us all the time. And take the opportunity to say, hey, you know what, why don't we try an optimization model with this? It might not work, but you know a little bit about that. Let's do it once. Let's see what it comes out with. It might give us something interesting. Um, I believe strongly that um, we need to always be interrogating data really, really thoroughly and then presenting the simplest possible version of the correct answer. And so I'm comfortable saying, well, let's let's try looking at this analytical method. Let's Why don't you go, this guy's really great at NLP. Why don't you go talk to him and let's see if we can apply some NLP to this problem. And that ends up creating a lot of peer learning opportunities where folks are, are building on the strength of what they have internally. Also ends up creating uh, a lot of practical learning experiences where someone will say, hey, you know, I in an NLP example at an 
old team, there was someone who ended up doing something that was for his school district, like his kid's school district. It's like, oh, I want to learn this technology and I don't have a data set I can use here. Here's this other one I'm going to do to get really good at it. And then we found a way to actually take advantage of that work. So learning on the job in some pragmatic way, a lot of peer learning. We've always structured sort of brown bags, et cetera, et cetera. And then a lot of community work. And actually, there's a really vibrant community in on LinkedIn. You're actually a, a stalwart of it. I love your monthly summaries. I read them religiously. And um, then, of course, there is a role for formalized learning. I have found that in our roles, there is more of a narrow role for formalized learning. We did do in my team about a year ago uh, a class on data visualization, um, just to sort of bulk upskill there. Um, but if you're thinking about ways to simultaneously enrich your team and also recognize and reward expertise on your team, some basic lunch and learns and brown bags and and peer relationships and and joining people together on a project is pretty powerful. How do you predict? And I won't hold you to this. I promise. How do you <laughs> how do you predict the people analytics field will evolve? You know, in the years ahead. Yeah, if I just think about the next three or so years. I do see us getting to more focus and more business alignment, really being clear about that impact in a way that not everyone has been. I also see us focusing much more on scale instead of doing a cool thing and walking away, uh, figuring out how to replicate scale, et cetera. Uh, The technology landscape in people analytics is kind of a wild, wild west at the moment. It's had a lot of consolidation, but I think there's more maturity and evolution that I expect to see. I'm curious about the extent to which we will, as a function, as a profession, evolve to thinking about workers and not just employees, particularly as we start to see different uh, ways of working. We've been talking about the gig economy forever, and it seems to have sort of stalled, but uh, it's a pretty unstudied area. There's some weirdness with labor law. Like we have to be careful for co-employment and some other things as internal practitioners, but as external practitioners, et cetera, um, it'll be interesting to see us think about workforces as a whole, as opposed to only employees. Of course, GPT, NLP, uh, technologies like that will fundamentally reshape some things, even in the next year or two. You can argue it's fundamentally reshaped things in the last six weeks. Um, it and to the extent that it replaces some of the didactic work, some of the, you know, tell me about work, I think it creates space for us to do more problem solving work. Uh, and I think that that's actually interesting. Um, I don't, I've never enjoyed writing action plans. And if GPT can do that for us, God bless. Figuring out how to implement, which action plan to use and how to implement it is interesting work. And so I think that that GPT can't do that for us yet. Uh, and then um, the last, I was actually just thinking this morning about how the way uh, medicine is evolving is a lot of the way I see PA evolving. There are new tests, there's new technology, there are new ways to customize sort of at the at the epidemiological end. Uh, and then there is a ton more quantified self, a lot more data that's available for the individual. And if we can equip folks to make good decisions without needing to touch us specifically and just use scale, I think that's really powerful. And then there's a ton of other allied professionals where you've got physical therapists and these kinds of folks. In a medical example, we have, I think, potential for lots of folks who are literate and specialized in sort of one area who can then take some of this insight and apply it to a particular business area. 
uh, in a way that then extends the impact of kind of the central PA group. And I think thinking of it in some of those three areas and maturing those three areas is an interesting model as we look sort of three to five years out in the future. Yeah, really interesting. And I guess that that kind of scaling, that productization that we, I've heard it referred to as well, that brings in maybe other skills that we haven't talked about yet, about thinking about putting the user at the center, you know, thinking about UX skills, thinking about, okay, we're great if we're developing products, just like obviously you do, your organization does create products that people use and they do use. It's an exciting time, I think, and, and more excitement um, to come. So, Alexis, finally, this is a question we're asking everyone on this series, um, and it's a kind of bigger picture. You may even bring some of the, what you've just spoken about into this. You know, what do you think HR leaders or CHROs need to be thinking about most of the next 12 to 24 months? And I know it depends on your organization a little bit, so maybe as a field. What is your biggest concern and, and, and what do you see as the biggest opportunity? My biggest concern is the extent to which, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? What's going to go on? How do we need to think about those things? So let's set that a little bit to the side. I do think we have huge opportunities, whether they're recessionary forces or not, to really get reporting right. It's still mostly a that's interesting in many cases. So really getting that right. Um, I think in the next 12 to 24 months, we have an enormous opportunity to be focusing on measurable impact. And that could be through this reporting. It can also be through the power of new techniques, not just the tools, but really making them making them pragmatic and, and joining them to business decisions. So regardless of uh, broader economic forces, I think that there is attention on the people part of the business that has been much much more um, much more concerted attention in the last few years. I think that that will continue. And I think we have opportunities, HR leaders have opportunities to really understand what's happening in the organization through solid reporting, really understand what to do about it and how to, how to bend that curve to the outcomes they need through analytics tools and techniques and make sure that everything we're doing in the people space, analytics space, learning space, recruiting space, performance management space, the whole deal, make sure that all of it is really focused on measurable impact but back to the business and to the individuals that comprise that business. How can listeners uh, stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, find out more about your work, find out more about PSYOP? Um, I know you've published books and other uh, publications in the past as well. Yeah, I do have uh, two books, one on actually people analytics uh, and and pragmatism, utility, showing the value um, called Investing with People. That's with uh, John Boudreau and Wayne Cassio. And then the other one is employees, uh, employee listening, sense, employee sensing and survey. Both of them are available on Amazon. If you uh, just want to generally be in contact, LinkedIn is the best way to do it. That has an amazing, thriving people analytics community. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm not, not as active as you are, but I, I try to stay up with that. So I think that that's probably the best, the best way. You, you're pretty active, Alexis, though, <laughs> which, is, uh, which, is, which is good because I think it's good that, that, that people share um, together as a community. So uh, Alexis, thank you very much. And hopefully at some point this year, um, we will see each other in person as well. That would be lovely. I'll be at PSYOP in Boston in April if you want to hop across the pond. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. My thanks again to Alexis Fink for joining us today and sharing her insights into building successful people analytics functions. If you did like the episode, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming channel 
so that we can keep producing the show. And if you want to stay up to date on the latest industry trends and best practices and learn more from us at Insight 222, sign up for our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. Bye for now, and we'll hope you enjoy us next week for another episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Take care.